Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian book reviews contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott and I'm assistant editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or $60 for print plus online. Hi, my name is Amy Ballew and I'm the Deputy Editor of Australian Book Review. And before I introduce this week's episode of the ABR podcast, I'm here to let you know about the 2023 Mildura Writers' Festival Residency. The Mildura Writers' Festival Residency welcomes applications from established writers working in any genre. Applicants are asked to propose a project that will enhance the regional or national cultural landscape. The Mildura Writers' Festival resident receives $15,000 to work on their project and is asked to spend one month in Mildura in Northern Victoria and to attend the Mildura Writers' Festival as a guest. For further details, go to www.mildurawritersfestival.com. Applications close on March 13. The ABR Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize is one of the world's leading prizes for an original work of short fiction written in English. The prize is currently open for the 14th time and is worth a total of $12,500 divided into three prizes. Writers have until midnight on April 24th to enter their stories. More details, along with answers to frequently asked questions, terms and conditions, and stories by past winners can be found on our website. In this week's ABR podcast, we go back to the origins of the Jolly Prize, with a reading from the winner of the inaugural Australian Book Review Short Story Competition, as it was then known. Maria Takalanda's A Rowankan Philosophy of Poetry won first prize in the 2010 competition, which was renamed to honour Elizabeth Jolly the following year. The judges, Chris Flynn and Peter Rose, were impressed and amused by this artful take on academic intrigue and absurdism. The story appeared in the December 2010 January 2011 issue of ABR and was later included in Takalanda's short story collection, The Double and Other Stories. The double also featured three other Rowankin stories, which all revolve around a mysterious interpreter of poetry. Patrick Allington, reviewing the collection in the September 2013 issue, observed that Tackelander's stories seem like wordscapes that offer panoramic views without shunning fine, sometimes devastating details. Maria Tackelander is a Finnish-Australian writer, reviewer, interviewer and independent scholar. In addition to her short story collection The Double, she is the author of four books of poetry, the most recent of which... Trigger Warning from University of Queensland Press, won a Victorian Premier's Literary Award. Here is Maria Takalanda reading A Rowankin Philosophy of Poetry. A Rowankin Philosophy of Poetry I worked for a while with the second cousin of an acquaintance of the notorious Minean nationalist poet Honoré Tutkinen, whose book The Overall Underling had done little, my colleague and I agreed, to advance sympathy for the pig breeder. This colleague, a lecturer in the Faculty of Business and Law, had initiated an ambivalent friendship with me when he connected the name on my pigeonhole with a controversial sonnet on the Agrillian practice of bovine circumcision. I had been fortunate to have the poem published in Moth, a journal widely regarded in an especially small circle. On the few occasions I saw the colleague in the staff room during my nine years as a PhD student and casual tutor in creative writing, he regularly referred to a peculiarly sensitive tome written by the little-known Kronkian anthropologist Zed Roankin. 
who had moonlighted in his time as a dog sled driver. Rowankin's book was about an extinct people whose winters were spent under the oneric flashes of the Northern Lights, and whose customs and language were distinguished by a charming mixture of bluntness and ambiguity. Their theory of poetry, my bearded colleague in business and law promised, was sure to be of interest to me. Unfortunately, the good fellow was, for a prolonged period of time, unable to produce the actual volume, a library book that he had apparently misplaced. One day, at the frenetic start of an academic year, as I adjusted to an unprecedentedly strenuous teaching workload of two creative writing workshops a week, while also continuing my struggle against the writer's block that had impeded progress on my thesis for eight years, I discovered the book in my pigeonhole. It was a handwritten, ten-page, stapled A5 pamphlet. It had been delivered along with a more conventional volume called Workplace Fraud. There was a note from my hirsute colleague who wrote that he had retired to dedicate his life to the Morganites, rumoured by some to be a ruthless economic rationalist organisation. The note also revealed that my former colleague had come across said Rowankin's pamphlet and the other book while cleaning out the bottom drawer of a filing cabinet which was filled with reams of notes taken at various annual meetings of the Faculty of Business and Law over his indubitably busy career. It would be appreciated, he wrote, if I would return both items to the community library upon completing my examination of them, taking care of any associated overdue fines. I will not report here everything that Rowankin wrote in that excellent book, for I would be merely producing an unequal replica of a study not especially concerned with my particular field of expertise. However, of unusual interest to me, as my former colleague had predicted, was the final, brief, but consequential chapter on aesthetics, and within that chapter, the penultimate subsection on poetry. As a preface to my comments on these concluding parts, suffice it to say that Rowankin called the extinct northern ethnic group the Rowankins, because they did not, as far as Rowankin could solicit with his limited Rowankin vocabulary, have a name for themselves. Rowankin also described the Rowankins as living in harmony with the catastrophic winters that took up an interminable part of each year of their existence until they all died. In the chapter outlining their theory of art, Rowankin writes that the Rowankins believed that art should deal only with the superficial realities of day-to-day living. More extraordinarily, Rowankin claims that the Rowankins believed art to know nothing of the abyss. They did concede, however, that art could certainly imagine the terrifying death to be met by one unlucky enough to fall into an icy crevasse while being chased by a bear awoken early from its winter sleep. The subsection on poetry begins by demonstrating the astonishing economy, the charming bluntness and ambiguity, as my old colleague put it, of the language of the Rowankins, in which single verbs can denote multiple complex activities. For instance, the verb for composing a poem and playing with one's faeces are the same. I must confess that at this point in my original reading, which occurred clandestinely during a poetry workshop in which I had set the students an exercise in defamiliarising a warthog, I experienced a moment of scepticism. I suspected that Rowankin, like many a scientist, might be hostile to literature and that this antagonism may have skewed the objectivity of his data. 
Perhaps I allowed myself also to question the goodwill of my former colleague in business and law in passing on the Rowankin tree ties to me. I had a precedent for such qualms. My mother and father, who worked respectively as a superannuation officer and a business analyst, had made clear their hesitations about my professional interest in poetry. In fact, when I announced to them at the age of 32 that I had received a calling to undertake a part-time postgraduate degree in verse composition, they evicted me from the family home. It was fortunate that an ex-girlfriend from my secondary school years, by then a single mother of seven, permitted me to move into a shed located in the backyard of her rented house. The garden shed abutted a homely chicken coop, and I had been living there comfortably beneath a picturesque series of power lines ever since. Sitting in the classroom that auspicious day, after succumbing very briefly to uncertainty, I was persuaded by the final lines of Rowankin's book that the findings of this valiant study of the vanished northern people named after its honourable investigator were unquestionably true. Rowankin's last words, outlining the Rowankin's philosophy of poetry, sung on the page, like a plague of locusts granted only 24 hours to copulate before they die. Yes, Rowankin or the Rowankin spoke to me thus, even though, I concede, they would never have known of such creatures in the cold familiarity of their white world. After rereading Rowankin's sensitively worded translation of the Rowankin's philosophy of poetry and surreptitiously placing it, along with workplace fraud, in the community library's after-hours return shoot, I found myself, night after mysterious night, dreaming of the strange hair of pigs and of Zed Roankin. Soon after, I experienced what I could only describe as an insomniac week of night trances that broke my debilitating case of writer's block. Lying on my back on my fold-out cot, listening to the restless chickens in the coop outside, and contemplating the dark corrugations of the shed roof above me, I found that poems emerged fully formed in my mind. I turned on my torch and began to write them down. During those inspired nights, sitting on my cot next to a push mower and a rusty collection of gardening tools, I transcribed a series of poems on the variegated forms of bodial flax and the wormy blackness of earth. That sequence of verse came to constitute the creative component of my PhD thesis. While my assessors seemed to have trouble fully appreciating the work, the manuscript was nevertheless passed without issue and swiftly published by Inveigle, a small poetry press that I established with the financial support of an emerging writer's grant. I was particularly proud of the company logo, which I designed myself without assistance. It was the bold outline of the face of a man, featureless except for a large moustache, which I imagined had distinguished the visage of Zed Roankin. I attribute the tenure I secured after completing my PhD to the publication of my poetry manuscript, which I had called Dabbling in the Dirt. Similarly, I accredit the research leave subsequently bestowed upon me to the favourable review of that chapbook, posted on the blog of Liberty Kwan, whose material person could be found in an unfamiliar suburb of the faraway city of Barcol Tour. I had used the internet to sell copies, one of which had been purchased by that unknown but generous amateur vegetable harvester. This period of leave granted by my institution was of personal and professional significance. 
it enabled me to search for the dog sled driver who had transported me to such heights. It allowed me to search for Zed Roankin. In order to plan my quest, I went to retrieve Roankin's pamphlet from the community library. I eventually located it with the assistance of an eccentric librarian, an old woman who acted more like a co-conspirator than a rational custodian of books. She led me to the economics section, where the volume was surprisingly catalogued between Tricks to Retiring Peacefully and another title that I happily recognised, Workplace Fraud. Upon escaping the peculiar librarian and reacquainting myself with the contents of the A5 booklet, I decided upon the brief period of the northern summer for my solo recreation of Roankin's epic journey from his homeland to the realm once inhabited by the Roankins. I regretted that my expedition would be less authentic for travelling in milder conditions, but I had become, over the course of my otherwise pleasant years in a garden shed, sensitive to the cold. Having mapped a viable route for my quest, I soon found myself riding on the back of a mule along a gravel roadside in the uppermost province of Fermine in Kronk. My head was protected by a contraption identified, I believe, as a hutuhetti by the introverted mule rental operator, who charged me an exorbitant 27 solandus for the mule and hat, despite my stated interest in an eminent compatriot of his. This hat protected me not from the heat of the sun, which was unexpectedly considerable, but from the swarms of mosquitoes that plagued the marshlands of the northern regions of Kronk during this time of year. The insects hovered over my faithful mule and me like a living silhouette, The two of us granted a reprieve only when occasional fast-moving cars stirred the air in passing. I met not a soul on those first days travelling across the interminable marshlands, although reindeer became ever more plentiful. When the sun hung low and the light started to fade in a sky electric with mosquitoes, I would set up camp with my mule on the gravel of the roadsides where it was dry. The nights, such as they were in this perplexing place, lasted only hours before the region's birds began their raucous darting through the mosquitoes. I believe that I had truly begun to understand the desperation and despair Roankin must have experienced in order to realise the territory of the seemingly mythical Roankins. Mid-morning of my third day on muleback, I arrived at the unremarkable village of Ostenich, which I estimated to be some distance further north from my starting point in Fermine. I tied my mule to a bicycle rack outside the old Ostenich Inn, which I had seen announced by a neon sign, and walked through a herd of mangy reindeer milling in the car park outside the public house. Upon making my entrance, I advanced immediately on the only fellow in the place, an ancient bearded man residing at a burgundy-coloured table in a dark corner. He was unfamiliar with my language, but when I showed him the pamphlet by Zed Roankin, for I had it stowed in my shirt, against my chest, and a brown ten solange bill, he became extraordinarily animated, displaying a thick tongue and poor habits in dental hygiene. I cannot relate here everything that this unusually loquacious native of Kronk said, for he spoke a language unknown to me. However, I can confirm that he verified that his compatriot Roankin, precisely as I imagined, had passed this way, that he had a bushy handlebar moustache, and that he had travelled through vast expanses of snow with a pack of dogs which smelled more rankly than him. 
This last detail, the old man communicated through a series of energetic yet simple gestures. When my narrator, whose name I had been unable to fathom, retreated to a mirrored bar to purchase himself a refreshment, I was a teetotaler, poetry being my intoxicant, I heard a peal of laughter. It struck me how grounded yet surprising these people were. Indeed, their paradoxical qualities were such that I wondered if they were not only compatriots of Roenken, but also descendants of the vanished Roenkens. I could feel my heart pounding in my chest, and I knew that I could not help but write a poem about this place. When I began thinking about what I knew would be my opus magnum on Roenken and the Roenkens, a work which would far surpass dabbling in the dirt, in its grappling with the earthly and unearthly nature of the earth, I held in mind the epics of the ancient Zamke, which sing of the seasonal assault of crickets and of horses trapped in fishing nets, as well as the bon mots of the monk known to history only as Gorbez. The rhythm of the mule, as it lumbered along the gravel verge in the glooming swamp, convulsing its head to relieve itself of the relentless insects, enhanced my poetic reflections. I decided to continue on my pilgrimage along the highway for one more night, before retracing my route, in order to return the mule to the taciturn mule rental operator, as agreed, by the end of seven days. I knew it was unlikely that I would find any further trace of the Roankans in this short time. In any case, I believed that I was almost ready to begin writing. By the ambiguous light of nightfall, after I had zipped up my swag to the sound of mosquitoes and the four-legged beasts quivering, I had the most uncanny dreams. I dreamt that I was Roankin, lying among the stink of his sled dogs, the fur around their mouths stained with the blood of hares shot for their supper, and then I dreamt that I was one of the Roankins, moving quietly upon Roankin as he slept among his dogs in the snow. I looked at the tenebrous flesh of his closed eyelids, at the ice beginning to encrust his heavy moustache, and at the notepad nestled among the anthropologist's reeking furs, I knew that the philosophy of poetry scribbled down somewhere on those pages was mine. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.